if you have not been here uh, to join us for all these messages, we've had uh, seven so far in this series. This is number eight. But I have some very good news for you. You might want to hold on to your seats. You can go to hammockstreetchurch.com or to the uh, Hammock Street Church YouTube channel, and you can binge watch all of the sermons in this series all at once, right away. You do it right now. Go out to the store, grab yourself some snacks, some drinks, uh, you know, non-alcoholic drinks, and just go, just party on. Oh, and you could even invite your friends. You can make it like a whole watch party. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? Wow, there's just the enthusiasm is overwhelming. You know, preaching the morning after you set the clocks ahead is always a challenge. But again, I thank you for, uh, for coming out. If you've been with us from the beginning, you already know this. But for those who have not, for the past seven weeks, here's what we've been doing. We've been talking about the way that many of us were just sort of handed a faith in our lives. We were, when we were kids, when we were young, it was usually a parent or an adult. They said, this is what we believe. And you said, okay, great. This is what we believe. And that was it. That was pretty much all you needed for your faith for a little while. When we became adults, our childhood understanding of faith or our framework for our faith oftentimes didn't seem adequate anymore. And while some people reached that point and then said, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to stick with my childhood faith the way it was. Others thought, you know, this isn't working for me. And I'm just going to tap out right here because I'm just experiencing too many weird adult things. Isn't the adult world just so strange? Isn't it really when you think about it? So we oftentimes think, gosh, I can't believe this stuff anymore. I'm not going to make a big deal about it or anything. I'm not going to announce that I'm just not going to come to church or not going to believe anymore. But I'm just going to kind of let my faith fade away. And because of that, we've asked this question in our series, if I can get that to happen, the question is this. All right, Rexy, help. All right, the question is, what would it be like to start over? What would it be like to start over? What would it be like to start over in your faith? And so to answer that question, that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about faith, and we're trying to discover what answers would be necessary for a person to completely embrace faith or to re-embrace faith as an adult. So in week one, we introduced the most important question that needs answering in this process. Who is Jesus? We have to know who is Jesus. Then the second week, we talked about knowing the difference between being a mistaker and being a sinner. Week three, we looked at whether or not there's anything that we can do, we in and of ourselves can do to make God love us. In week four, we looked at the role of rules, the roles that rules play in our practice of our faith. In week five, we asked the question, what can wash away my sin? Only the blood. We saw how to move on from problems that we have experienced in our past. Then in week six, we looked at God's grace, God's unmerited favor, and we talked about the past, and we talked about the way that we should forgive ourselves because God has forgiven us. And then last week, we reduced all religions down to the fact that they are all simply just self-fulfilling prophecies. And we left off on a question of purpose. Is Christianity just another religion or is there something more to it? 
So that's what the series has been about. And if you end up binging the series, which I really do recommend, or if you send it to somebody else and they watch it, let me know about that. I love to hear these things because I like to track and watch people and see if their lives are changed by coming to know God and getting to know God's word. Now, today, we're going to finish up this series, and and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you about one more thing that happened historically, that if you're considering embracing Christianity, or if you've already embraced Christianity, you, you really need to understand this thing that happened. Because this event, which, by the way, is an event that continues to happen. This event was fundamental to the Christian faith. And it's one of those things that when you look at it, you think, how can you explain that other than the fact that Jesus is really alive and that Jesus is still working in and through people today in our world? We've called this message invitation. So why don't we pray and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Even though we're time jet lagged, we are here eager to understand you a little bit better, understand your word, and allow your word to sink in. Allow your Holy Spirit to take hold of our heart and guide us closer and closer to you. God, we thank you for this time. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today's story comes to us from Matthew, the former tax collector who became one of Jesus' disciples. And I'm going to set up this story for you. So one day Jesus and the 12 apostles were about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, as you may be aware, that part of the world where Israel is located today is often exceptionally hot during the day. It's a desert, which means that it's also extremely cold in the evenings. And because it's a desert region, it is dusty, very dusty all the time. Your feet are dusty, your hands are dusty, there's dust in your nose, there's dust in your eyes. It's just a a mess. So after a long journey, Jesus and the disciples found themselves outside of the city known as Caesarea Philippi. Now in that day, Caesarea Philippi was a thriving, impressive city. Today, it's a ruin. But in that day, it was a thriving city. It was originally known by the name Peneus. But around the time of Jesus' bar mitzvah, right around the time he was 13-ish years old, the city was renamed Caesarea Philippi. And it was named Caesarea Philippi because it was that year that Augustus, Caesar Augustus, died. So they named the city, they renamed the city after him. Now, who was Caesar Augustus? Okay, you historians out there will recall that Caesar Augustus was the first true Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar whom the Romans had deified. The Romans had considered Julius Caesar to be a god, which made Caesar Augustus the son of a god. So anyway, Jesus and his disciples were walking up to Caesarea Philippi. It's up in the north. When Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them a very famous question, one which I'm going to guess you've probably heard before. And so here's what Jesus said to his disciples. I'm going to give you my paraphrase version of it. But here's what he said. He said, okay, fellas, here's a question. We know who Caesar Augustus was. He was the adopted son of, of the deified Julius Caesar, of the God they considered Julius Caesar. But he said, but who do you think I am? 
And so here's how they replied in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter stepped up. Peter was always the bold one, if you remember. First one out of the boat. First one to jump into the fray. Peter stepped up and announced, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, without any hesitation whatsoever, gave God the right answer. Gave the Lord the right answer. He said, boss, that is an easy question. Caesar Augustus was the son of a dead God. You are the son of the living God. To which Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. He says, Pete, attaboy. That's it. And I know that you didn't think of this by yourself. I know that God the Father gave you that answer. And then Jesus made an incredibly powerful statement. Now, if you grew up in church, or if you've been to church a bit, you've heard this statement before. In this statement, Jesus made a prediction that would change the course of world events. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. All right? Now I'm going to take a small detour because we've got a little theology lesson here. Now, if you grew up Catholic, and statistics tell us most of you did, you were taught that the rock, on this rock I will build my church, the rock referenced Peter. Because Peter was asked the question, and because the name Peter is the Greek word for rock. Now, from that assumption, the church was built. Peter was considered to be the first pope. And the magnificent basilica, the cathedral, the church in Rome, now Vatican City, was named for him, St. Peter's Basilica. Now, conversely, we Protestants believe that by calling him Peter, Jesus was making a play on words. He gave Peter a nickname. So, go back here and follow. Peter's given name was the Hebrew name Shimon. Shimon Barjona, which we translate into English, Simon, son of Jonah. Okay, that's what that means. Shimon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. So after he gave the correct answer to Jesus' question, Jesus then gives him the nickname, Cephas. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic word for stone. Jesus spoke Aramaic, okay? Now, the Greek word for Cephas is the word Petros, Petros, which is similar and related to the Greek word Petra, which means rock. Okay, so you're seeing how this works. Petros, but Petra. So Jesus essentially gave Simon, that was his name, Simon the nickname Rocky. That's kind of what he was calling him, Yo Rock, right? That's what it was a nickname. And then using wordplay, he told Rocky that his answer to Jesus' question would form the solid rock foundation of the church. So the church is built on the solid rock foundation of the fact that Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, you can play games with this. You can have a good time with this. You can entertain the discussion. It's a lot of fun. You could do it forever, probably for the rest of your life. But that's not the important part of this verse. 
The important part of this verse is not really the meaning of Peter's name. The important part of this verse is what Jesus said. You see, when Matthew told us about this exchange, he recounted it for us. He told it to us in his preferred language. Matthew spoke Greek. And when recording the words of Jesus, I will build my church, Matthew used the Greek word ekklesia. So Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. Now, what's ecclesia? It's the word that's over the door as you walk into this room. Ecclesia was a commonly used and very widely understood Greek word that wasn't a religious word. It was just an everyday word. It meant gathering, assembly, or congregation. You know, you go to high school and the football game's coming up on a Friday night and everybody gathers in the gym. That's an ecclesia. Okay, it's just a gathering. That's all that it is. So essentially, Jesus declared to Peter and to all the rest of them who were listening that he was going to build his gathering based upon the statement that Peter had just made, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, which is just the Greek word or a version of the Greek word for Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. But check this out. When Jesus made this declaration, he and the disciples were a little over a hundred miles away from Jerusalem. And they were in the middle of the desert. They were located up near Lebanon and Syria in the north part of what we know of as Israel. And it was in this very unimpressive, very unremarkable place that Jesus announced how the way in which he was going to begin the project of assembling and gathering and drawing his followers together into a congregation, into a worldwide community that is set apart from the rest of the world because of their faith in him. So Matthew went ahead and recorded Jesus's words in about 85 AD, which puts it at roughly 50 years after Jesus's resurrection. So Matthew recorded in his gospel, he wrote it, In Greek, the language of all the New Testament writers. Now, as time went on, Matthew's gospel was shared among the Jesus communities around the world. And these Jesus communities were springing up far and wide. They were springing up everywhere. And as his gospel was shared with them, it went to different people groups. It went to people who spoke different languages. And as a result, that gospel was translated into many languages as it was being read to the people who spoke different languages. And eventually, the word that Jesus used for the gathering of his people, ecclesia, became lost in translation. Now, In the English Bible translation, which is the one that's pertinent to us here today, because that's the language we're speaking. And I know I skipped a few hundred years and a whole bunch of translations, but I want to get you guys out of here before lunch. So I love you that much. But in that English translation, the word ecclesia became another word altogether. And it took on an entirely different meaning in the process. Because even though it's not entirely settled, and this is another thing that you can study forever and ever and ever, most scholars believe that a German word, the German word is Kirche, Kirche. Kirche was substituted in the English translation for the Greek word ekklesia. Now, the German word Kirche is not, hear me again, the German word Kirche is not a proper translation for the Greek word ekklesia. Kirche does not mean gathering or assembly. Kirche means house of the Lord. So instead of a model of the gathering or assembly of the people of Jesus, we ended up with a word that actually denoted a place. 
the house of the Lord. And there is a ton we can say on this subject, but here's what we need to understand today. Jesus did not predict a place. Jesus predicted a people. And Matthew knew that because Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel, he was there. And when he sat down to write out his gospel in Greek, he chose the word ekklesia, which was not a religious term. It just meant a gathering or a people. In fact, just to round out this little detour so we can continue on, in the 16th century, an Englishman by the name of William Tyndale decided to translate the New Testament from Greek into English. Actually, Tyndale was the very first person to translate the whole New Testament from Greek into English. It had been translated piecemeal here and there by different communities. He's the one who put the whole thing together, the whole New Testament in English. And when he got to the word ecclesia, according to his own account, he was stunned. Tyndale recognized that the Greek word ecclesia doesn't mean house of the Lord. The notion of an ecclesia isn't even reflected in the German word kirche or the English word we derive from it. It transferred to a word kirk and we've made it the word church. And so in Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, Tyndale translated the word ecclesia into the proper word. He called it a congregation. So his translation essentially read, Jesus said, on this rock, I am going to build a congregation of people. Jesus did not predict a place. Jesus predicted a people. Now, what happened? Well, naturally, the people who were in charge of the place, the people who were in charge of the church, didn't take too kindly to Tyndale's translation. They kind of liked being the gatekeepers of the Lord's house. They were not interested in having the people of Jesus spread out, out of their reach, out of their influence all over the world. So the church authorities had Tyndale arrested and charged with heresy for the crime of mistranslation. And for that crime, for that crime they executed Tyndale by strangulation. They choked him to death And then they burned his body at the stake just for good measure, even though his translation was absolutely correct. All right? That's your history lesson. That's your theology lesson. Now back to our story already in progress. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, but we know it's ecclesia. So after Jesus made his prediction in Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to build my people, he and his disciples continue to travel around. And eventually, they made their way back south. They made their way back to Jerusalem. They ignored the warnings of Jesus' followers. Don't go back there, boss. Don't go back there. It's dangerous. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he was arrested. And he was ultimately crucified. And after the crucifixion, as we mentioned last week, if we'd gone to Peter, if we'd gone to the apostles, to the disciples and said, hey, now who do you think Jesus is? Do you still think he's the Messiah, the son of the living God? Peter would have said no. No, I don't. We were wrong. We would ask, do you think he's still going to build a gathering? Do you think he's still going to build an assembly of Jesus followers? Is he going to build a congregation? Is there going to be an ecclesia of people who follow Jesus? And Peter and the guys would have said no. Because Jesus is dead. Because Jesus is gone. And yet, as we talked about last week, something changed. Because the same men who ran for their lives when Jesus was arrested 
and then hid in the crowd to watch Jesus die, those guys are the same guys, along with a group of women that followed Jesus. They came back when Jesus was resurrected. And they said, we're back. And we're back because we've seen a risen Savior. After Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered together a group of his followers. We don't know how many people he gathered together. We, we believe is roughly around 120 people. And to them, Jesus said these very famous words that tied into his prediction that one day there would be a Jesus gathering. One day there would be a congregation of people who believed in Jesus. And here's how Matthew recorded that. He said, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus came to his followers in Matthew 28, and he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So picture the scene. Jesus is standing in Jerusalem. He's in front of 120 people, give or take. He's on a hillside after the resurrection. And he says, okay, may I have your attention, please? You in the back, eyes, eyes front, let's go, listen up. All authority on heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to me. Now, no disrespect intended to the Lord, but that is a bold statement, isn't it? That's an audacious statement. All authority has been given to me, to me. That statement is either wildly supercilious, wildly out of this world, wildly, where'd that come from? Or it's incredibly accurate. If, if I were to say something like that, can you imagine me saying something like that? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. You would run me right out of here and you would be right to do so. But they didn't run Jesus out of town. Neither did they take offense at his words. And that's probably because the guy who said those words was the same guy they saw brutally murdered and miraculously resurrected. Andy likes to point out that when one predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, if he says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, you're going to say it sure has. We've never seen anybody do that before. I mean, that's pretty compelling. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, in light of the fact that I can ask you to do anything or I can do anything myself, here's how I want to channel all of that authority. You have to imagine they were sitting at the edge of their seats and they were waiting with bated breath. Come on, what are his next words? What's he going to say next? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Of all nations. Jesus said, in light of all of that, here's what I want you to do. All right? Here's the scene. They were hot and they were uncomfortable. They were covered in dust. They were on the run from the Jewish authorities. They were on the radar of the Roman overlords. They were outcasts. They had no status. They had no wealth. They had no power. They had no connections. They had no influence. They had no organization behind them. I mean, they were the definition of nobodies. And Jesus said, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go. I want you to go into all the nations of the world. These people had never left their own country. They had never gone to another nation. Most people didn't travel more than 10 miles from the place they were born. I want you to go into all the nations of all the world, to all the other ethnic groups that you've never mixed with before in your life. I want you to go to all the people of all the world and make them Jesus followers. 
then Jesus concluded with this in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus said, go do that and I'm not leaving you. And then he left. That's what he did. Then he left. He said, I'm going to be with you always. And that was it. They left. And they went back to Jerusalem. And a few days later, as we talked about last week, you can read about it in the first chapters of the book of Acts. This group of people who watched Jesus die, who'd seen him resurrected, who said, heard him say, go into all the nations. They went into the streets of Jerusalem. And as we said last week, the message that they brought to the people in Jerusalem was very simple. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Now say you're sorry. And with that, the Jesus gathering was born. And then the movement started moving. That's what movements do. Movements are supposed to move. And the book of Acts tells us that eventually thousands of people, not halfway around the world, not a hundred or hundreds of years later, but right where these events took place, right within the city of Jerusalem, and very shortly after the fact, began to tell the people, Jesus had been raised from the dead. God has done something significant right here in our midst. And with that, the gathering of followers of Jesus began to grow. With that, the ecclesia was born. But check this. The ecclesia of Jesus was not born because of any claims of truth. It wasn't born because of any doctrine. It wasn't born because of any truth claims. Every other religion gets its start around the claims of truth. If you think about Islam, it got its start because you had to believe in the truth of this revelation to Muhammad. The, the Mormon faith was born because of the revelation, the revelation that this man Joseph Smith supposedly received from God. It's born around a claim of truth. But the Jesus gathering began around something different. The Jesus gathering began around an event. And that event was Jesus' resurrection. Now, in the beginning, the movement made a lot of progress, remarkable progress. Things started spreading out, and the word was taken throughout the region, and people were coming to know Jesus. But after a while, things kind of slowed down a little bit. The movement kind of stopped moving, and the gathering stopped growing. So God intervened again. Now, I don't know if this actually happened but go with me on this because I'm kind of guessing here. It's like God looked down and he said, wait a minute, I need to do a little more work here. I, I need to turn up the heat. I need to take things up a notch. You see, he'd been using Jesus' disciples to spread the word, the fishermen and the, and the zealot and the former tax collector. And he used them to spread the good news around Judea. But it was time to alter the game plan. It was time for him to go out and find a ringer. You know what a ringer is? Sports guys know what a ringer is, right? It's, it's, it's the person you bring on your team and they're better than everybody else and it helps the team win and all that stuff. So God decided I'm going to bring in a ringer. I'm going to look for a well-educated, multilingual, multicultural, aggressive guy who's a religious scholar, who's a Roman citizen also. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on the disciple free agent market and I'm going to try to pick up this guy for a little easy trade I want somebody who's going to garner respect among the Jews and the Gentiles. I want somebody who's going to push this movement to new and greater heights. So God did something so out of the box that at first nobody could understand it. God called a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader, by the name of Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul, previous to this, had been on his own mission. On a mission to stop, not to spread, to stop the Jesus movement. And Paul was, Saul was committed. We can see in Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8 that Saul was a part of the crowd that egged on the executioners of the Jesus follower named Stephen, who became the first martyr. Saul had developed a reputation as a one-man Christian wrecking machine, Christian elimination machine. The mere mention of Saul's name in that community inspired fear wherever he went. But he was the man that God would recruit to take this Jesus movement to the next level. And if you're looking for a starting point in your adult faith, you need to know about Saul. So let's learn. In Acts chapter 9, we can read how Jesus appeared to Saul as Saul was traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute more of these believers. And for anybody skeptical about the truth of the Christian scripture, Acts chapter 9 presents a very compelling case for Jesus. We're not going to read it here today. But Jesus confronted Saul on that road, and eventually he recruited him for the cause. But Jesus blinded Saul. And then God sent a man named Ananias to bring Saul to Jesus. We go to Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up. And he was baptized, and Saul got right to work. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And once, at once he began, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so that's how Saul got his start. Eventually, he goes back to Jerusalem, where he meets with the other members of the Jesus movement. He meets Peter, he meets John, he meets Jesus' little brother James, and Saul influenced them to put some motion behind the movement. Leading by example, Saul took the movement beyond the holy city. Saul took the movement beyond God's chosen people. Saul began traveling further and further from Jerusalem. Now, it was when Saul was in Antioch, which is located in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, with other believers, it was then that Luke started to refer to him by his Greek name, by the Greek version of his name. So his name in Hebrew, of course, was different. The Greek version of his name was, uh, was Paulus, which we anglicize, put into English, as Paul. Then Acts gives us the details. If you want to read the details of Paul's missionary journeys, as we call them, go to the book of Acts and you can read the details. Paul traveled by ship all over the Mediterranean to every major port city. He went anywhere where there were synagogues, anywhere where there were Jews, anywhere where there were Gentiles, anywhere where there were converts to Judaism from the world of the Gentiles. And beginning shortly after Jesus' resurrection, for 30 years, Paul traveled. 30 years. And along the way, He was arrested, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was stoned, but he kept on planting Jesus' communities everywhere he went, all around the Roman world. And interestingly, he didn't do it by repeating the Sermon on the Mount. Paul did not go around spreading the word about Jesus by telling Jesus' teachings, by speaking Jesus' teachings. He didn't talk about the parables. Paul spread the news of Jesus 
by preaching that God had done something in their midst. Paul did it by preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead. We began this series talking about how Paul did that in the city of Athens in one of his trips during those 30 years. But fast forward to the end. Paul is in his mid-60s, and he's arrested one last time, and he's taken to Rome. And even though he'd been imprisoned in Rome before, this time, Paul knew, "Mm, this is it. The end is near. And even though he was warned, don't go to Rome, he went anyway. And at that time, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Anybody know who Nero is? Remember Nero? You should Google Nero. Read about Nero. He was horrible. What a horrible tyrant. Under Nero, Christians were fair game. He was able to go after Christians and torture them and feed them to wild animals, throw them to the lions, abuse them. So Paul, Paul knew. Paul knew this. Paul knew the fate that awaited him. So Paul sat in a Roman prison awaiting his execution. So the question is, was he afraid? Was he dejected? Or was he confident that the movement he'd advanced far and wide would survive him? I don't know. Did he fear that his ministrations had been in vain? We have no way of knowing what Paul was thinking. But wouldn't it be great if we could go back in time and tell Paul, hey, Paul, you need to know this. Your ministry literally. Now, I get really worked up when people use the word literally wrong. But this one's literal. Your ministry literally changed the world. If only, Paul, you could have seen the Roman Forum as it is today. If only Paul could have seen how the Forum, the city center of ancient Rome, where monuments to Greek and Roman gods just predominated. They were everywhere. Where the Roman Senate met and the seat of the Roman government began. If only Paul could see the place where pagan thought was proclaimed and where Christians were arrested and tried and sentenced. If only he could see it had become a place where there were crosses on the buildings. And those crosses pointed to Jesus. And people came to understand the origins of their Christian faith by going to this very place where Christians were persecuted. If only Paul could have seen it. If only Paul could have seen what they called Nero's Circus. The place where Nero had persecuted Christians and allowed the wild animals to tear them apart. The the place where Nero had crucified Jesus' followers. The place where he would eventually crucify Peter. Legend says, upside down. It was the place where he'd impale Christians on stakes and put tar in their hair and light the tar on fire so that it lit his gardens. If we could only tell Paul, look over there. Look where Nero's circus once stood. Now stands a magnificent cathedral built to commemorate your friend, Peter, whom they call Saint. By many accounts, Paul, it will be the most beautiful building on earth. And Paul, someday, thousands of people, thousands of people from all over the world will come to that very city, but they're not going to ask the question, where's Julius Caesar buried? Or where is Caesar Augustus laid to rest? No, Paul. Instead, they're going to ask their tour guides, will you show us where Paul, the Apostle Paul, was imprisoned? I mean, can you imagine telling Paul that? Paul, I know this will be difficult for you to believe, but one day, there won't even be a Roman Empire anymore. 
But there will be communities worldwide of Jesus followers in almost every major city in nearly every country in the entire world. And Paul, you know all those letters that you wrote? They're going to be translated into over 1,200 different languages and distributed to the ends of the earth. Wouldn't it be cool if we could tell Paul, Paul, there's going to be a time when once a year, families worldwide are going to mention Caesar Augustus. But it won't be because they're celebrating his story. In fact, the name of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, will be remembered only as a footnote in the story of the birth of your Savior. I've heard Andy say this. What if we could tell Paul one day, Paul, parents will name their children after you and after Peter and after John and after Matthew and after James. They'll name their children after you and they'll name their dogs Nero and Caesar. Do you think Paul ever could have imagined that? I don't think so. But it happened, and it happened just as Jesus predicted it would happen. Because there, outside of Caesarea Philippi with his 12 men, Jesus said to them, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Nothing would stop the advancement of the Jesus movement. Jesus promised that as we go into all nations and invite people to become his followers, he will be there, he will be right there, with us, always, to the very end of the age. So as you're considering your adult starting point for faith, there are a lot of belief systems out there. There's a lot of different belief systems that you can consider. And there are a lot of truth claims you can consider. But eventually, you're going to have to wrestle with two things that actually happened. First, a group of people came to Jerusalem and said, we saw a risen Savior. And second, For the generations that would follow, that community would spread to the ends of the earth just as Jesus predicted. And here is the best part of all. Every person listening today, every person here, every person listening to us online has been invited to participate in this thing that God is doing in this world. By being a part of that very same ecclesia, that very same community, one which we have here at Hammock Street. Because the local church is what God is up to in our midst. In spite of our failures, in spite of our hypocrisy, in spite of us, the church continues to influence the world. It's because Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia and nothing will stop it. So my next question is, and I want you to wrestle with this. What's my next step? Now, for some of you, the next step is simply to do what you're doing. Come, sit, listen, soak, learn, enjoy. Just keep going. Keep thinking about it. Keep praying about it. Keep asking yourself, can I really believe this? Can I really embrace this? That's for some of you. For others of you, the next step is to place your faith in Jesus. Because you've heard all you need to hear. Something during this series just flipped a switch in your heart and your brain. And now you know. You know that you know. For some of you, your next step is baptism. We just showed the video. We had a blast out. There was so much fun. It's so cool to do that. And you're like, I want to do that. I need to do that. I want to join the hundreds of millions of people who've gone before me and publicly declared their faith in Jesus. I want to declare my faith in Jesus, the son of God, the lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. 
That could be your next step. For others, your next step is to get into a small group community where you can continue to grow and and learn about your faith. For other people, it's time to serve, time to step up, volunteer. When you step into a volunteer role here at Hammock Street, you're connecting with all the people throughout the ages who have worked and served their communities, who have stood at the epicenter of all of God's activity in the world. For others, your next step is to learn to give. Learn to give. Set yourself up for giving. Give periodically. Set it up so it's automatic. That's what I do. Every paycheck, I set it up. Automatic giving. I have to tell you, and I'm not making this up. You can ask anybody who knows me. Giving is one of my favorite things about being a Jesus follower. I love giving to the church. I love it when I can give to the church because I get to see what's happening, what God is doing through resources he's given me. I've been doing it for more than two decades and I've never looked back. And I've seen the differences it has made in people's lives because giving allows God's church, God's community to serve other people in the greater community. When you give to the church and the church makes disciples, you're giving money to the greatest, most eternal investment possible because the church is built by Jesus. Church is the hope of the world because the church embodies the only message that has the power to truly change the hearts and minds of people. Now, in our day and age, we hear a lot of messages that are focused upon or focused on trying to change the hearts and minds of people. Do this or you're not a good person. Do that or you're not a good person. They don't work. This works. It's proven. 2,000-year track record. This can change the world. I want you guys to know It is my heart's desire. It's the thing I think about when I wake up. It's the thing that I think about as I walk by the way. It's the thing that I think about when I lie down. I want you all to become Jesus followers. I want you all to be connected. But I want to encourage you to do that, become connected, but do more. Not only become a Jesus follower, but also take a bigger step. I want you to engage with God's activity in this Hammock Street community and become a part of the only hope For our world. See, the message that Jesus gave his disciples outside of Caesarea Philippi on that hillside that flooded the city of Jerusalem, that the Apostle Paul took all over the Roman Empire, that message is the very same message that Jesus has given us. And when we embrace that message, it becomes an opportunity to partner with God in the work that he's doing all over the world. So whatever your next step is, please take it. I promise you, you will never, ever regret it. It may just be your adult starting point. As you consider what God wants you to do in and through your life, in this age that will one day come to an end, whatever's stirring in your heart, please take action and become a part of God's plan. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series, for the things that you've shown us in this series. God, we ask that you continue to guide us toward our next steps. You continue to help us make the decisions we need to make as we draw closer to you. If you're sitting here this morning and God is leading you right now to become a Jesus follower, you can pray this simple prayer to yourself as I Say it out loud for you. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. 
I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And now I turn from my sins and give you my heart and my life. I want to follow you and trust you as my Lord and Savior forever. God, we thank you for this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.